Hey, everyone. Before we get on with the show, I just wanted to encourage all of you to get your COVID-19 vaccine if you have not already gotten it. COVID-19 vaccines are starting to become available to the general public. Getting vaccinated is the first step to getting back to all the things we miss the most. I just got my second vaccination of my Pfizer shot, and I am beyond excited to go give my mom a big hug. She can't travel. She is battling cancer, so it's just not something I was able to do, and now I can go see my mom, and I am beyond excited to do so. So it's not just visiting your friends and your loved ones. It's supporting the hospitality industry, going to movies, all the things that we love so much, sporting events. All of these things can only happen if we all get vaccinated. And it's not just America. We should support this on a global initiative. It's okay to have questions like, should I get it? Is it safe? Should I wait? You can get the facts at getvaccineanswers.org. That's getvaccineanswers.org, one word, so you can make an informed decision. Please, please, please get your vaccines now. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks, Yola Tango. I am uh, holding a microphone very close to my uh, face, so if the audio sucks, it's because I am on the road. I am currently in New York City for like 72 hours, getting some filming done and apologies to anybody that I know in New York City and my friends if I did not contact you. I've had no time and it's back to uh, LA to help out over there, but um, I'm here and I recorded this podcast, at least the guest that we recorded, Gideon Lewis Krauss with Chris Ying, uh, on a um, setup that was not sanctioned by producer supercomputer yeah. Isaac Lee <laughs> and I will not describe what happened but um, basically it's this I'm a dumbass I'm a fucking dumbass and as I recorded my equipment I did everything and what makes me more of a dumbass when I packed my stuff is my wife said you sure you have everything you have your recording equipment I said yes and I like rolled my eyes being like of course come on of course I have everything <laughs> Jesus <laughs> and as usual Grace is right I am sorry I'm sorry Isaac Lee that I forgot, what is this cord called? XLR cable. The XLR, the infamous yeah. XLR cable. And um, I didn't realize I didn't have until like 30 seconds before about to record the podcast with Gideon. And um, Isaac, apologies. I have to do my apology to everybody. I am sorry, everybody, for being a fucking dumbass of the highest order. I'm sorry to... All of my ancestors and all, anyone that's going to come after me for being the biggest fucking dumbass. Uh, I've let everybody down. That shouldn't be a surprise. I've continued to just mess things up. And most of all, I am sorry to Gideon, who deserves the best recording possible. But I, you know, I, I just messed it up. I feel like uh, I threw an interception. I feel like. I threw an interception and all I needed to do was give it to Marshawn Lynch and, and I don't know what to do. And I'm sorry I let everybody down. Isaac Lee, I hope you forgive me. You know what That's though, right. Dave? I, I think that Isaac might have turned us into like the mole women in Kimmy Schmidt. Like he has us brainwashed to think that people care about this <laughs> and we have to apologize every time it happens. But it might be that nobody gives a shit 
only the holy order of audio nerds cares about this. And he's making us apologize every time. <laughs> Chris, you're, you're right in the sense that like, I mean, five years ago, people didn't really care about this. But in this day and age where po- the podcast space is evolving and everything's getting better very quickly, more and more people are caring about audio quality. People just turn off podcasts that don't sound good. And uh, it's a sign that the industry is improving and evolving and maturing. Um, and at the same time... <laughs> I swear to God, outside of the bunker, it's crazy out there. There's dinosaurs <laughs> yes. and fire. Audio balls. matters is all I want to say. Audio matters. And we've just lost entire audience because of my audio. And I'm sorry... <laughs> Sorry to everybody. I mean, it's not that bad. The reason I think I messed up was before I was able to get back to my hotel where I'm staying at, I was abducted by aliens. (laughs) Right, right, right. Exactly. And I saw the universe for what it is. And Mm -hmm. they they took me to planets that nobody knows about. And they walk amongst us. Just FYI. (laughs) If this doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry about it. <laughs> this interview should make sense to you because we're talking to Chris Yang's good friend, New Yorker st- staff writer, Gideon Lewis Krauss. And he wrote, how would you describe this, Chris Yang? He wrote in maybe the most reputable, credible magazine in the world, 13,000 words about flying saucers and why and how the U.S. government... <laughs> has come to take them very seriously and why maybe we should too. And I love UFOs. I love (laughs) not conspiracy theories. I don't love that kind of shit, but I love two things specifically. Alien artifacts or alien things or UFOs and end of the world natural disasters. So anytime there's like the, 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 the SETI world talks about discovering some kind of alien life or whatever, I'm, my mind just stops because I'm waiting for the day that we find out that we're not alone. I think that to me is going to be the most significant day of all time. I mean, literally, if you think about it, the most significant day in human history outside of the evolution of us will be the day we find out that we're not alone. Mm -hmm. How can you not be excited for that? So that's why I love it. Not that I believe in conspiracy theories. Not that I believe that there's aliens on this planet. You should read Gideon's piece in this week's New Yorker. Because honestly, even if you don't read the New Yorker, you'll look cool if you subscribe to the New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) Just remember to throw them out so it doesn't look like you're just collecting them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that the reason why I was interested, I thought we would both be extremely interested, is like, the the whole thing is how does how does something like UFOs, which started as a very credible thing to talk about, Gideon talks about how in the beginning in the fifties, like everyday conversation, like you fifty percent of Americans believed in UFOs. How does something like that become crackpot and crazy? And how do ideas become crazy? And I know that's unsatisfactory because we want to know if aliens are real, but like I don't know. That's also an interesting question. Let me ask you this though, Dave. You read it three times. You refused to answer this during the interview. Are you more or less of a believer after reading this? I'm less of a believer. Less? That aliens walk amongst us. Okay. <laughs> Wait, where were you before? What? How much did you believe that before? I pin all of my hopes and reality on the Transformers series and Stargates <laughs> SG-1 <laughs> through some cross-section of the Pyramids and Optimus Prime with the yeah. AllSpark. Um, oh my God, the AllSpark. <laughs> but it didn't happen because we couldn't find the Energon cubes. <laughs> so, oh um, no, but but truthfully, like I know that sounds totally insane, but I, I get super geeked out so much so that when the article came out, Chris forwarded me the idea that this article was going to come out and I, I was overjoyed because I love reading this kind of shit. So um, I mean that, like just suspend everything for a second and just be like, Imagine we find evidence that there's intelligent life outside in the universe. Just think about that. If that happened, and again, mathematical probability that it is likely, what do you do? Imagine the headlines in the New York Times. Like, holy fuck. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Like, how do you go to work the next day? The stock market will probably crash. Like, what what happens? What would you do, Isaac, if you found out you read in the New York Times headline, mm-hmm. alien life exists and they're smarter than us. 
I'd be really stoked. First of all, I'd be super excited because that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, and then I'd be worried that they would be hostile. Like that's that would be the first question actually. Is like, oh, are they going to be like? Can we be friends? Like, can we have like, a, can we communicate with these aliens? You know, like that's what I would want. And I would just have a million questions. I would, you know, what are you made of? Are you are you carbon based or are you based on some other kind of? That element? would be the one question you ask right off the bat. <laughs> are you carbon based? <laughs> Basically, the reason I'm asking you, this is an interview process for the whole world. Uh -huh. Who's going to be our representative? It's not me. <laughs> it, it, it ain't me. Hello, are you carbon-based? <laughs> I just asked, my question is, how spicy do you like your Thai food? Chris, what's your question? We got some strong candidates here. Um... I mean, I guess the the obvious the, the question that Isaac actually asked first was, "Do you come in peace?" But I think that if it's me, it's got to be like, I don't know, an it's overrated not, rock, under paper, rock paper scissors, <laughs> rock paper scissors, <laughs> Rochambeau. <laughs> Do you go on three or or, or, or after three? Yeah, <laughs> just like uh, diet soda, overrated or underrated? <laughs> <laughs> What's the best thing you ate this week? I know it sounds crazy, but I, I, I weirdly think about these things because it gives me weird anticipation. And I, I, I hope, I actually think like one day that'll probably happen. And what the fuck are people going to think about? You know? So that's why in a, in a, in a break from our normal rambling, incoherent podcast, we give you someone much smarter than all of us combined. And someone that I think, uh, it's probably like, why am I friends with Chris King? Um, <laughs> oh, Lewis Grass is, is one of the, the the smartest, best writers out there. And uh, if anyone's going to do this justice. And if you listen to him, you will understand why it's a New Yorker piece. Because there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of how does someone that's really smart and intelligent, like one of the main characters, main people in his article, um, Keen is her last name. Uh, how do they talk about something if they're really adamant about that. So I'm sure people listening to this are like, what the fuck? Last week you're talking about poo? Now you're talking about <laughs> Yeah. I guess my first question Aliens like, and their uh, spice tolerance? If you really have to go, do you ever just pee on your own UFO? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like <laughs> the back tire of their UFO. <laughs> uh, um, we talked a little bit about food in this one. We that's why I said if my question <laughs> Just to make this a food, food podcast, my question to aliens would be not just how spicy do you like your Thai food, what region of Thai food do you like the most? Are you northern or are you southern? Okay, that's all I'm going to say. That would be my question. I'm going to throw that in, my, in the hat for the world to nominate me. What question would you ask aliens? You should send that in to askdave at majordomemedia.com or on our iPod iTunes page. There. <laughs> Here's uh, Gideon Lewis Krauss because I don't know what the fuck's going on. I think this three-hour jet lag has made me lose my fucking mind. <laughs> we are joined today with an author that I am very excited to pick his brains, a friend of Chris Yang's, Gideon Lewis Krauss, who... Has just, I mean, how many words is this article, Gideon? Uh, just shy of 13,000, I think. <laughs> what a doozy. Um, and I read it on my phone, and I don't think I've ever read anything uh, so long and so interesting on my phone ever before. I just kept on scrolling and scrolling and scrolling <laughs> on my New Yorker app. I was like, Jesus Christ, this is just never ending. I hope it doesn't like, end. It, is he just writing this as I'm going? Is he just yeah. the, the infinite like, bowl of soup? You know it's a good story when you're, you're literally telling yourself, I hope it doesn't end. Like watching Game of Thrones or something, like, I hope it doesn't end. <laughs> He wrote in this week's issue of The New Yorker, the May 10th issue, how the Pentagon started taking UFOs seriously. For decades, flying saucers were a punchline. Then the U.S. government got over the taboo. And Chris Yang knows that I am, I'm not a, a conspiracy theorist, but I love weird shit like the end of the world. And Chris has heard me talk many, many times over drinks, the idea of aliens and, uh, <laughs> He was like, a couple weeks ago, he's like, hey, by the way, Gideon's writing this article. I think you're going to like it a lot. And what? No, no surprise. I was so excited that I said, Chris, we have to get him on the podcast <laughs> immediately before 
all other news agencies and other people, even the New Yorker, were like, we got to have this guy talk about this article. So I am honored. Thank you for joining us, Gideon. Thanks for having me, guys. How did you get started on this crazy journey? So I had just started at the New Yorker last spring, like a month into the pandemic. And we were talking about what what I was going to do. I had kind of agreed to do one story right off the bat that was kind of a COVID adjacent story. And my editor came to me and said, you know, like we've known or we've hoped that you were going to come for a while. And so we've got a couple of ideas, you know, potentially earmarked for you if you're interested and showed me a few of them. And, you know, they were all really good ideas, but all pretty sober. And then there was one of them, you know, most of these ideas were written out by extremely bright young assistants, you know, six paragraphs with a hundred links. And one of them, all, all of them were kind of daunting. And one of them was just two lines. And it was like, maybe it's time to have somebody figure out what the hell is going on with UFOs. And uh-huh. I thought, uh, yeah, that that's the one that I want to do. I want to do the UFOs on. But also, there, there was no chance, Gideon. Were you afraid for even a second that it was just a, a new staff writer hazing ritual, and they present all new staff writers <laughs> with a UFO story to see if they'll take the bait? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, one of the ways in which I choose stories is that I think to myself, like, oh, would I be jealous if I opened up the magazine and saw that somebody else had done this? And I thought, yeah, I, I want to do that one. But it was a month into the pandemic. I was living at my mother's house in New Jersey. I, my wife was pregnant and I thought like, this is not the right time to do this story for me that, you know, this is time to do some COVID stuff or do, you know, just a story about UFOs was going to get lost and for good reason. So then I came back from paternity leave in the fall and my, and I had actually kind of forgotten about it. And my editor, the first thing she said to me was, so what do you think of that UFO idea? And I said, okay, well, let me, let me look into it. Let me see if there's a, a serious way to do this. Cause I don't want to do like a fish in the barrel piece. I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to take it seriously. So let me try to figure out if there's a way to do that. And I started looking into it and then she happened to mention it to David Remnick at some point, And he was like, no, 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 he's doing that. Like we're going to, you know, push him <laughs> off the plank here. He's definitely, he's going to figure it out. So then it was assigned even before I had, I had figured out how to approach it. Okay, so definitely a hazing ritual. Definitely a Remnick. <laughs> just like, uh, make Gideon do the UFO one. <laughs> also, at, the, at that point, I think I felt like, even for me personally, like after seven months of doing nothing but read serious stuff about COVID and the election, I thought like, I, I need to do some counter-programming for myself. And I think that was like the right attitude to take into this piece was people are, are ready to read something that, is you know has absolutely nothing to do with anything that's really going on right now. Although, of course, then it, it does in the end. I had a holy fuck. Because uh, these are stories that you don't expect in The New Yorker. The last time I had the, my jaw dropped was, the, the I think, the one that won a Pulitzer for the coverage of the potential earthquake in the Pacific Northwest. Kevin which Charles, was like, yeah. Which, you know, you know, I say this in the best way possible. It's the kind of story you expect to be on, like, the cover of New York Post. You know what I mean? Not the New Yorker. And that's what I love about this is this is intense, serious journalism <laughs> on the most bonkers, insane topic, UFOs. And I don't even know what to think. I've now read it three or four times. I still don't know what to, to think about any of this. Ying, what do you feel like after you've read this in the New Yorker, right? This is as far as I'm concerned, like the like the real paper of record, right? Like <laughs> nothing, yeah. nothing is wrong in the New Yorker. Well, that's like sort of essential to the whole, the whole thing, right, Gideon? Because it's it's UFOs are never taken seriously. People who talk about UFOs are crazies. People who just the UFO world is a crazy world, and, and the whole point is is about the legitimizing of of this whatever it is, right? The the study of unidentified flying objects. And the fact that it's in the New Yorker is the whole thing, right? Because you couldn't have written this for maybe three other publications in the world where it like it would have the gravitas that Dave is talking about. I, I think that exactly what Dave is saying played out because the day this article came out, the New York Post like glommed right onto it, right? And had oh, like a like big within, splashy... within an hour. They right. had... And the big headline was like, 
former Senator Harry Reid thinks Lockheed Martin may have UFO fragments. It was literally <laughs> straight from the New Yorker to the New York Post, but like it had to start at the New Yorker. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was what was so interesting to me about it from the beginning was that contrast. Um, and so I had to figure out in what, you know, what makes this a New Yorker story? And, you know, that was why from the beginning, I thought this, obviously, I, I hope parts of it would be funny, but I thought like, okay, how do you figure out a way to do this and take it really seriously? What is the question that we're going to ask that we can conceivably answer? Because the question that we could conceivably answer is not going to be like, what are UFOs? Are UFOs aliens? Like, there, the, the, you know, that was not going to be the resolution. But then you need to figure out, well, what is like, what, what's the right question to be asking here? And to me, it became, I guess, fairly obvious when I started looking into it that the interesting question here w- was simply UFOs used to be this completely taboo topic in public conversation. And then the question was, how did this become a creditable thing to talk about? Like, why do serious people now all of a sudden talk seriously about UFOs? And that was going to be the interesting question here is like, let's look at the life of this taboo. And then when I started getting into history, I thought, oh, you know, the way that this taboo was constructed in the first place is completely interesting. And to me, like that was sort of the low hanging fruit of this story. You know, there are a lot of UFO people who read the story and said, like, oh, well, we, we knew all this stuff already, but, and sure, they knew that stuff already, but I certainly had no idea. So that, what does that you know, mean, the, Gideon? Like, how was it constructed? How was the, how did UFOs become taboo and weird? Well, so the, the first thing that I came across was, you know, in a sense, it was kind of a historical anomaly that we didn't talk about UFOs for the last 50 years because from 1947 until 1970, UFOs were just something people talked about. I mean, it wasn't something everybody believed in, although there, there are Gallup polls from the late 60s and early 70s that show that basically half of Americans thought that UFOs were real. And so one of the first things that I found was, okay, you can find long, serious cover stories about UFOs from Life Magazine and Look Magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, even the New York Times Magazine in the 50s and 60s, that this was just on the public agenda. And like not necessarily, I mean, there was plenty of lunacy, but like not, it wasn't all lunacy. So that was the first thing was like, oh, this was something that used to be taken seriously. So then the question was like, well, why did we stop taking it seriously? And that's actually where like, as much as I tried to stay away from the kind of conspiracy mongering, that's where there's a little bit of truth to some of this conspiracy stuff, which is that this was a pretty deliberate plan on the part of people in charge to ridicule this. <laughs> this is like such a crazy statement. I I don't know what to think. This article has completely flummoxed me because I don't know why I trust the government on this. I don't trust the government on anything, but I trust the government mm-hmm. on all of this. That like, there's no way that there's a UFO that's shaped like a tic tac that <laughs> is out there, you know. And, and 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 I don't know. But you also build this compelling case for the like, you know, the the people that are writing about this that they're not crackpots. So like, I don't know. And this is why I was like, oh, this is the New Yorker angle. It's like I don't know where to feel or or believe on this. It's pissing me off, actually. Well, so, I mean, one of the things that... <laughs> I mean, if you figure it out, you should let me know because I, I came to the end of all of this and still thought, like, I don't quite know what, what I think about all this. But to me, that was that was one of the interesting things to, to do here, especially because sort of just in my own reporting, it, kind of with any piece, for me, off in the process, and I think for a lot of people, is like, you start looking into something in a way, like, in a way that you fall in love with it. And then kind of the second half of the reporting piece, you fall out of love with it and like regain some distance on it. And so for me, like at the beginning, I just really immersed myself in the credulous side of this. And that then, you know, after a couple months of that, I started looking into, okay, what did the skeptics say? And one of the things that I realized when I decided to introduce one of these skeptics as a character is that, of course, readers are going to identify with both of these people. And you kind of needed both of them to seem to present them as interesting and credible sources here because we both have these moments of wanting to believe and moments of feeling hard-headed and skeptical and that I wanted both of those things reflected there so that, you know, because re- readers would say like, okay, this binary here like reflects me in different moods. So let's, let's start with this, Gideon. Of all of the cases of reported unidentified, what is the other one? Unid- aerial phenomena, UAPs. right. right. That you you heard about, read about, saw a video of, 
in the reporting of this article, which was the most sort of compelling or stirring one to you? Which one felt legitimately most like, hmm, this is something unexplainable? Okay, so it's pretty common that what people will say to people who, you know, write and research professionally about UFOs is kind of what's your best case, right? Because especially skeptics are like, give me your best case. And then if we can show that that was just like Venus or a meteor or whatever, then that we kind of don't have to take the subject seriously. And the thing is, there's no perfect case. Every case is messy. Every case, you can undermine it some way or another. There's always some aspect of these cases that throws the whole thing into doubt if you try to examine all of the evidence in sure. good faith. And one of the things that I found, you know, when I was thinking about, okay, like which cases are we going to focus on these in this story is the best cases that seem to hold up and don't immediately fall apart are often the less sensational ones. Are They're the ones that are like, oh my, you know, there are stories about like a UFO landed in remote Papua New Guinea in 1955 and was seen by a missionary or like this UFO landed in a rural Zimbabwe schoolyard in 1994 and telepathically told all the children there to dismantle nuclear weapons or whatever. <laughs> Those cases seem to be shakier. I can't say that categorically, of course. But the cases that seem to hold up better are often the ones that are just slightly eerie. So that's why one of the cases I talk about is this case of, um, they call it the Alderney incident or the Alderney encounter, where a, a pilot uh, in the spring of 2007 was flying a 40-minute flight from the southern coast of England to Alderney, which is the northernmost of the Channel Islands. And he saw these two glowing lights that had a corporeal disc-like form. Um, he estimated them to be a mile wide. There were two of them, and he saw them through binoculars. There were at least three other passengers on the plane who saw them. They were uh, radar returns corroborating this. There was another pilot flying another direction that saw this. So, And then uh, this very well-known British skeptic wrote a 200-page report where he said, at the end, he kind of throws up his hands and says, I, I don't really know what to make of this. Like, there aren't any totally plausible explanations for this. And that's a case where it's, you know, there's no landing, there's no crash, there's no abduction, there's not, there's just a general eeriness. And it's the eeriness that holds up. So to me, those are actually the better cases. So like the J. Allen Hynek, who is a astronomer that I read about, he had this ranking or he had this way of analyzing cases where he would talk about the level of strangeness and the level of probability. And you know, so to me, like the the better cases, the cases that seem a little bit harder to just explain away are are the high probability cases, but the low strangeness cases. A lot of the high strangeness cases don't really seem to hold up all that well. So where are you? Where did you start before you took this project on? Give me two numbers between zero and 100. First, zero to 100, where were you on believing that the government was controlling the narrative or hiding something that they knew about UFOs or hiding their own interest in, in UFOs. Zero being, I don't believe that's the case at all. I think the government doesn't care about this. hundred being, oh yeah, they've got alien bodies at Roswell. Where were you prior and where are you now? I mean, certainly closer to zero prior. I, I mean, I think, not that I'd ever given it that much thought, but I certainly knew like, oh, UFOs are kind of wrapped up in like the development of the U-2 spy plane or the SR-71 Blackbird that like, and the government probably had some vested interest in the public confusion about this because it was just really helpful for counterintelligence purposes and in terms of like signaling to the Russians, you know, what kinds of technology we didn't and didn't have and like our control over our airspace. I guess I just thought that it was part of that broader Cold War discourse. But I, I just had no idea how many figures within the government took this seriously. Now, as lots of people pointed out, you know, one of the takeaways from this piece is that, like, maybe we have a fantasy. Obviously, this fantasy is somewhat more difficult to maintain now than it would have been even a few years ago, that, like, people in high positions in government have reasonable beliefs. And, like, part of this is, like, well, no, they have just as many unreasonable beliefs as the rest of us. It's kind of not, shouldn't be that crazy that, like, lots of people in government believe in UFOs. But I, I had really no idea like how much of a topic of ongoing conversation and conflict this had been. I mean, if it is true, then the world would like riot. The world's over. <laughs> well, okay. So this this is one of the big questions, right? Is that lots of people have said, well, what's at stake here is like the very stability of the geopolitical order. But, you know, one of the things that 
Leslie Kane, the woman that I wrote about in part, points out is that over the last 20 years, plenty of countries have kind of loosened up about UFOs, kind of starting with France and then UK and Sweden and Denmark and all these places have you know, released portions of their UFO files or they're not, they don't guard them so jealously anymore. And like those countries aren't full of buildings on fire and people panicking in the streets and that maybe actually there's not quite as much at stake that way as, as people suspect it. Or of course there are, there are people who suspect the opposite, which is that like, oh, if, you know, like we knew that alien visitation was, were real, everybody, all of humanity would all of a sudden be welded together in, in its perception of some foreign enemy. Which also seems un- unrealistic to yeah, me. Yeah, because that worked out super well with COVID. We all joined forces uh, so lovingly and uh, unified against a common enemy. And I learned something new, actually. I didn't even know that an astrobiologist was a profession. Oh, I didn't sure. know that was a thing. Did you know that yeah. was a thing, Ying? No, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I, I, nor did I know that a ufologist was a thing. Somebody who studies UFOs. I had to ask Ian how to pronounce that. I mean... An astrobiologist is very different than astrology, I would imagine. They have to be, you know, graduate of Caltech. <laughs> well, no, those, I mean, those are legitimate scientists. And I think a lot of people sort of suspect that those kind of professional astrobiology types would be sympathetic to UFO discourse. But they're often really not, in part because their own credibility is so hard won that, of course, they're the ones who are going to patrol the boundaries and be like, no, what we do is not crackpot UFO stuff. This is, this is real. So they tend to be very unsympathetic. I mean, that's what I sort of believe. I, I, the smarter people in the world that study this in a scientific, rigorous way, that theorize like the probability that there's life out there is just too high. So you just have to assume that it's true. It just isn't the representation that we've come out to understand it as a flying saucer that is right. here in America. That I, I, I can understand, and that's what I believe in. Ying, is that your sort of understanding that there is life out there, but not the life that we've ho- we created as a Hollywood sort of understanding? Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think I believe in any of those sort of like little green men, alien encounter stuff. But Gideon, you wrote somewhere in here that like interstellar travel by living beings still seems like a wildly remote possibility. But in my head, I'm like, if the universe is infinite, like a wildly remote possibility is basically a guarantee. So I will say this. I don't know if you guys will if you guys will go out on a limb with me, but like I believe fully in extraterrestrial life, and I feel fairly confident that they have visited our planet. Ha, we did well, it. Wait, we, we, we did it. We, we, this is all just a setup to get you to admit you're a crackpot. You're a total crackpot. This crack was the hazing dress. ritual. It was actually just for me to admit that I believe in aliens. Fuck you guys. Stargate is a real movie. Based on true story. Uh, I mean, no, neither. Like, do either one of you? We're, we're, give me at least a number, a range of confidence that aliens. Well, wait. Have. Let me get back to your to your question though, because like, I do think that this is this is really relevant. Which is in this question of sort of like, why has this all become a matter of public conversation again? Part of it is that all of a sudden. Certainly in comparison to the 1950s or whatever, when government, you know, government officials or scientists of the Rand Corporation would be like, can't be aliens because it's simply unfeasible, period. You know, now we know about there are hundreds of millions of potentially habitable exoplanets in our galaxy alone, let alone the billions and billions of other galaxies. Goddamn right. And actually, so this, this question of, is faster than light travel possible? I've gotten a bunch of emails from various physicists in different states of um irate rejection of what i said but you know i like the, <laughs> wait, wait, this, wait, wait, wait stop 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 stop, stop. I, you got like physicists saying what like you idiot this is not possible i mean i literally right before we started recording i got i got an email from somebody i probably shouldn't name who it is let me see if there's name the university name the university institution <laughs> they work for um, actually, there's no int- there's no university. This is just from a Gmail account, mm-hmm. and it says Fox the, the, the the subject line in all caps is faster than light travel, not possible. <laughs> and the guy says, "Dear Mr. Lewis Krauss, in your recent New Yorker article on the Pentagon's attitude toward UFOs, you state, quote, physicists have known since the early 1990s that faster than light travel is possible in theory. As a practicing PhD physicist." 
I can tell you that this is incorrect. If someone told you that, they are far outside the mainstream understanding of physics. In other words, you got bullshitted. This misinformation isn't fit to print in the New Yorker, and it casts doubt on the veracity of the rest of your article, which is already about a fantastical subject matter. Please issue a correction. Uh, but I mean, that's just not, that's just not true. I mean, I, I talked to plenty of, like, it's not like anybody thinks that this is going to happen tomorrow, right? But there are absolutely serious people who are interested in, like, the theoretical physics of how fashion and light travel would work. I mean, like, that's not up for debate. And what I had a, I got a similar email like this that was slightly kinder in tone, I would say, a couple days ago. And I had an exchange with this guy and I was like, look, you know, like, you're a physicist. Obviously, you know that, like, Ernest Rutherford said that, like, the idea of getting energy out of the atom was pure moonshine and he said that as late as 1933 i mean so like our greatest physicists don't necessarily have a great track record with prediction and again as you just said given the age of the universe the earth is what three and a half billion four billion years old we've had a technological society I mean, that's not what the bible says this is 2000 years old 4000 excuse me i mean we've had a technological society for a hundred years. And like, it's absolutely not conceivable. It's not inconceivable at all that there could be a civilization a million or a billion years ahead of us. Uh, I mean, that seems to me like incredibly narrow to think otherwise. So this is how Dummy Me interpreted what you just said and wrote about in terms of it being possible faster than light. I, I, I was picturing Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber being told oh. that there's a chance <laughs> there's for him so, to... So you're saying there's, there's a chance? That's, that's all you need is a chance. <laughs> I don't know why these uh, practicing PhD physicists are so angry. There's a chance. There's a chance. Well, that's a real, that's a question I had because there is a tone of anger there, Gideon, and, and not oh, only... Oh, no, there was... Uh, no, I, I wasn't just playing that up. I mean, that was in the email, I think. <laughs> I mean, not even just in sort of like you, you know, the, the anger is couched in, hey, you've misrepresented faster than light travel, but they also threw in like, you're writing about a stupid, fantastical topic to begin with. Yeah. In your article, you've got one guy, Mick West, who's like a skeptic, disprover, debunker guy. Is that his name? Mick West? Mick West, yeah. And then the other sort of like central character is Leslie Kane, who is a deep believer, who has reported on this for the New York Times, who has, you know, tried to get these the government to take this seriously. What do you think compels believers and skeptics, try just generalize for me as best you can. Like, what? Why is a skeptic so? What angers a skeptic so much that they want to like make a, a whole life's pursuit out of debunking UFOs? And why does somebody like Leslie Kane just want so badly to believe? Uh, I mean, for one thing, as in anything, like extreme antagonists are usually much closer to each other on some level than either of them want to admit. I mean, so in this case, I think it's like a classic example of the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And that if you are so worked up that you're a professional debunker, then you clearly have something really invested in this question. <laughs> and like, to me, Mick West was interesting to me for a lot of reasons. For one is that he's been sort of the main person trying and often, I think, successfully, at least in part, debunking some of the the videos that have been released. He provides, like, pretty good explanations, although he provides pretty good explanations of just the video evidence. I mean, like, he, he kind of does this by setting aside all the testimony and all the other evidence. And it, he admit, admits this. He says, like, this is the hard evidence that you guys have, and I'm not going to deal with pilot testimony, and I'm just going to deal with these videos. And he has convincing explanations for these videos, at least in part. But what I thought he was, in, in a book he wrote, he was very articulate on the matter of how he came to debunking, which was that when he was a kid, he loved to read science fiction, but he was also terrified by stories of the paranormal and scary encounters with cryptozoological creatures. And that for him, you know, when he felt like he became scientifically literate, it wasn't it had some kind of therapeutic value that like he no longer had to be scared that aliens were going to come abduct him at night. And so he has this idea, you know, when he writes about conspiracy theories that he's helping people not be scared. And to me, what he missed in our conversation, he had, he had compared UFOs to ghosts to me as if they, these were kind of like two related things. And I thought like, 
oh, actually, I think those things are very different for a lot of reasons. I mean, in part because UFO, a lot of the, you know, more credible wing of, of UFO interest, they really see themselves as like a scientifically, you know, adjacent, at the very least adjacent to scientific inquiry. That's like, they think that there's really hard evidence, like this isn't just about ghosts. But the other thing was that, to me, the vast majority of the UFO people that I've talked to and encountered are not afraid of UFOs. And in fact, it's the opposite, that they don't want to be weaned from a belief in like scary Independence Day aliens. Like they actually think that there's something, you know, potentially redemptive here, that this is like that there's solace to be found, even if it's not a case where like, oh, the aliens are going to come, you know, save us from global warming, which certainly is something that exists, or save us from nuclear annihilation, which was definitely something that existed. It's more just like, it brings great solace to think that we're not alone in a gigantic universe that we don't understand, that there's something like Copernican about that. And so I think that there's like a bit of a mismatch in terms of just the emotional valence that's attached to these things. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that most green powders and probiotics don't survive digestion? Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is engineered in a two-in-one capsule to safeguard viability through digestion for complete delivery to your colon. A broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole-body benefits, including gut, heart, and skin health. Visit seed.com slash Dave Chang and use Use the code 25DAVECHANG to start seeding today. That's code 25DAVECHANG to start seeding today. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. Can I ask, and I'm so happy that I'm talking about this, when you were spending time with Leslie Keen, I was imagining if I spent time with her, would I be like, this is somebody that is just crazy? Or is she completely rational, lucid. And that's what I think she is. Yeah. Right? Like, no, I mean, she's a, she's a very, that's the kind of the whole reason why I went down that path for this piece is that when I first was looking into it, I just Googled something like, what are the legitimate serious books about UFOs? (laughs) And like, there aren't zero, but there aren't that many, especially not like with kind of a historical dimension. And hers, you know, came up first on all of my searches and hers was the first book that I read. And it's funny, actually, Ying and I have a really close mutual friend named Peter. And I, I immediately sent it to Peter. I was like, you have to read this book. And he was like, he got back to me a couple of days ago and was like, this, I'm not going to finish this book. It's really boring. And I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't think it's boring. It's a little repetitive, but I certainly don't think it's boring. But that was what I really liked about it is that like, it's not lurid or sensationalistic at all. Mm. It's very sober. And like the, the prose is very sober. And I thought like, oh, this is the person that I want to talk to. Somebody who, you know, is able to write about it and address it in this kind of register where it's clearly something she cares about, but like there's nothing, you know, it's a whole entire book that has nothing about abductions or probes or whatever. So then I went to meet her. She lives in New York and just right away, like she just is a very, sensible person. And, you know, she's really careful that like, she won't ever criticize anybody's beliefs. Like she will not call any belief crazy, but she's just really careful about what 
what she talks about and to make sure that she's taken seriously. Uh, to, to Dave's point, though, you talk about like the for every Leslie Kane, there's what a thousand not Leslie Kanes because you talk about it in the article too, where every, every, everybody says. I'm a ufologist. I am only interested in strong, clear data. I'm trying to make a scientific case for the existence of UFOs piloted by extraterrestrials. And then within an hour, is that always the case? No, I mean, there were plenty of people where that was the case. I don't want to say that this is everybody. And like, really, you know, in my time with Leslie, like, she did not, you know, she certainly said things that I didn't agree with. And there are cases that she thinks are strong that I do not think are strong. But she didn't say anything, like, completely batshit, whereas, like, then there were other people that I would talk to, and, like, for the first hour, they'd be like, I'm interested only in, like, military encounters from the rank of major and above, you know? And then, like, an hour later, they'd be like, well, the thing that you have to understand about the aliens is that they've actually been living in secret bases under the sea for three million years, and they're the ones who, like, genetically engineered primates to become humans and like they taught accounting to the Sumerians because otherwise like how would they have understood accounting which is what gave us agriculture you know like really crazy stuff. I love how you actually talk you you briefly mentioned that in the article (laughs) (laughs) Sumerian architecture um I, I this is just so insane to me um when you you brought up an interesting comp for this and I didn't think about it this way it says if if you wrote an article proving ghosts exist, right? Like if ghosts existed and they they wander amongst us in our homes, and the New Yorker decided to write an article about it, I'd be like, this this is fucking crazy. <laughs> and in some in some way, that's what you've you've done to a lot of people. I probably argue more people believe in ghosts than they do UFOs. Oh, interesting. Huh. I don't know about that actually. A lot of people believe in ghosts or some a lot supernatural of thing. Well, okay. Well, there's one, I mean, there's one stipulation we have to make that we haven't said so far, which is that like, there is this question about like what UFOs even are, right? And so in the strictest possible definition as just stuff that has been seen in the sky that cannot be identified. I mean, like, that's uncontroversial that that exists. Like, there are plenty of things in the sky that people can't identify for one reason or another, have not been able to identify. The question is whether that's interesting. Like, that's, to me, that's like a trivial observation that, of course, UFOs in the strictest possible sense exist. So it's more, like, the real question is, like, do you believe that UFOs are, represent a meaningful category of observation? Yes. Um, Every time I see a bird in the air that I cannot personally identify, I assume it's an alien. Actually, that's what, um, that it's, it's funny that you think that way because the other person who thinks that way or thinks the opposite of that way is my four year old son who's been, <laughs> been hearing me talk about UFOs for six months. And now, like every time we're at the playground, he's like, I just identified a flying object that was a bird. <laughs> you quack. He's calling you a quack. <laughs> I've identified that. <laughs> did you did you did you think about having to write about the the asteroid Uma Uma? I can't even pronounce oh, so, it. Uma Uma. Yeah. So I talked to that guy um, Avi Loeb after I read his book, and I mean, like, he, he certainly doesn't think that there's anything to UFOs. Um, but what's interesting about him and his book is that he phrases this as a kind of like wager. Like he models it after Pascal's wager, where he's like, okay, we had this thing come through our solar system, we just don't have enough data to know what it was. Although even in the last couple of months, they're slightly what I take to be more convincing explanations of it. But he said, like, what if we just treated this as the detritus from some alien civilization? What if we said, like, maybe this was a light, you know, a light sail that had been on this course for millions of years? How would that change the way we act? And he's very optimistic about this. Like, he's not a panic in the streets guy. He's like, oh, well, if we knew there was an alien light sail, like, that would be, you know, Sputnik to the nth degree that all of a sudden we'd be like, wait, we really have to get our shit together and figure out how to do that. And we would like come together as a planet. And then I was like, well, you, you should read, uh, the three body trilogy because they did not come together as a planet. <laughs> well, that optimism right there. As actually, as I was reading this article, I was thinking about I was thinking about Dave, and and besides the fact that Chang, you're interested in UFOs and, and crazy stuff, I thought the other super compelling thing about this article is taking things seriously that people write off as dumb, right? Like I think, like I was telling Gideon, you know, Michael Pollan's book about LSD and psilocybin. A large thread through that book is how 
those hallucinogenic drugs got written off as just like hippy dippy bullshit and thus like derailed serious study of their therapeutic benefits. It really reminded me of this piece where it's like, okay, why can't we just assume for a minute? Maybe it is alien detritus. Why can't we take this seriously? Even if it sounds dumb, couldn't it yield interesting results? Couldn't it yield positive benefits to just like take the thing seriously? Um, Like doesn't stigma work against discovery? One of the examples that UFO people love to use all the time is the example of meteorites that like for a really long time, scientists were like, well, we know that like rocks don't fall down from the sky. Like that's insane. And then even like there's this famous quote from Thomas Jefferson where he's making fun of some professors in the early 19th century for saying like rocks fall from the sky. And Thomas Jefferson's like, yeah, right. Rocks. We know rocks don't fall from the sky. <laughs> that's, and, the, that's the quote. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's the quote. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, some of them like to make fairly sophisticated kind of philosophy of science arguments. Like I, I did not expect to do a piece about UFOs and like talk to people who like literally both like believe in like men in black that like this taboo is enforced at gunpoint, but then also would be like, well, like as Thomas Kuhn wrote in, you know, in the structure of scientific revolutions. And I'd be like, I, the, I didn't expect this conversation to go there. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I have so many questions, but I'm, I don't know how to ask them without sounding like a total idiot myself. I mean, Ying just basically said he believes in alien life forms and the this planet. <laughs> I also just made, I also was just like, LSD needs to be studied more. I'm sounding like a complete fucking lunatic on this episode. Well, but that's the funniest thing. And, and, and the reason why I like this idea is exactly that same reason that I, I, I like bad culinary ideas like MSG or can Asian food actually, does it have to be cheap or anything like this? Because this is one of the biggest crackpot ideas you could possibly ever have. But I do agree with the the notion that you can, what, what would happen if you just assumed it to be true? And what does that unlock? And I don't know, this is, this is a, the, the mother of all what if things, but pfft. I don't even know where to begin. Like, I currently tend to believe we may be more of a simulation than we are aliens. And if we live in a simulation, then clearly <laughs> there's an alien race. And, you know, there, a lot of the UFO people like to point out that, like, there are theoretical physicists who have much crazier ideas than than UFO ideas. And they're like, well, how come we get to, like take certain implications of string theory completely seriously that are like way crazier than like the idea that aliens are visiting in spaceships. Uh, Gideon, can you explain what the report is that will be coming out next month and whether or not you're, you're interested in its contents? Yeah. So basically the, th- the thing that kicked off this whole UFO boom or Renaissance in 2017 was when Leslie Kane in the New York Times reported that there had been this secret black money program that ran initially from 2007 to 2012, and then it ran in an unfunded, unappropriated way at the Pentagon after that. And then that sort of morphed right after the Times article came out into what now is called the UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, which was officially announced by the Deputy Secretary of Defense last August. God, I want a, um, I want a UAP task force hat so bad. And, um, I mean, this is not like a major investigation. Like, it's a couple of people trying to pull together a lot of disparate agency data to say, like, to try to figure out what's going on here. Although one of the things that came out in my reporting was essentially that, like, it's not really that the New York Times revealed this extremely formidable program. It's almost like the New York Times created this because all of a sudden the fact that there was widespread fascination with the government being interested in UFOs made the government be more interested in UFOs. Now, this was all coming from the legislative branch. This was pressure from Congress more than it was internal at the DOD. But so last summer, uh, Marco Rubio is basically credited with having led this campaign to introduce into the Intelligence Authorization Act this language that said we're going to create a task force and they're going to have 180 days in conjunction with the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense to tell us what the government does and doesn't know about UFOs. And so kind of every month that goes by, there's some high-ranking former official who goes on TV, especially Fox News, which loves this stuff, to like hint about 
major revelations. And so John Ratcliffe, the former DNI, was the most recent one to go on TV and say like, well, we have this satellite data about UFOs and this is all going to come out in this report in June. Um, the people that I talk to, for the most part, do not expect some great revelation from this report. They think that the report will have like, you know, some additional data about stuff the government has found and, but that anything interesting in it is going to be in the classified annex to it and is not going to publicly come out. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're going to, the government's going to do the same thing they did with the JFK assassination stuff. They're going <laughs> to just release stuff, but everything's going to be redacted. <laughs> the, the Harry Reid thing we alluded to earlier. Basically, Gideon, you spoke to Harry Reid, who is, I mean, how do you characterize? He's hes a, not a believer, but he has been one of the legislators most interested in sort of like finding out what's happening, right? Long right. story short. He, he was the one who pushed for the original $22 million in funding. Okay. And and he was he was the the, the Democratic lead senator, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he was the majority leader. He was the majority leader of the Senate. He's no dumb yeah. dumb. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Reid is very, very legit. Uh, and Gideon, I mean, basically you have, he he says to you, both on in, in your piece and in the uh, New Yorker Radio Hour, that at one point he tried to go get access to Lockheed Martin, who people had speculated had fragments from, you know, downed UFOs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, let, let me give a little bit more of the backstory here. More of the backstory here is that last summer, in the last piece that Leslie Kane did for the Times, she and her co-author reported reported on speculation about the existence of crash debris. And she had these slides that had apparently been shown at uh, various congressional briefings or briefings, at least for staff members that refer to off-world vehicles or alien crash debris. I don't think it's an alien, but crash debris. And then, and all she did was say, Harry Reid seems to more or less believe that this could be true. I mean, she mm -hmm. didn't say, like, she didn't say, like, Harry Reid has dispositive evidence that we have a crashed UFO. She just said, like, Harry Reid seems to believe it. And then immediately, Harry Reid demanded a correction and, like, kind of got it through a little fit on Twitter saying, like, I don't talk about little green men, but I talk about a science. And they had to issue this correction that was like, Harry Reid does not believe that UFOs have crashed <laughs> and that we have been, private military contractors have been studying the debris, trying to reverse engineer it for decades or whatever. But Harry Reid believes that if UFOs had crashed and we had recovered the debris, then we should be studying. Which to me is like an utterly uncontroversial thing to say, <laughs> because what would your other option be? Like... <laughs> Uh, if you had UFO crash to be, you're going to study it. Um, I'll just burn it. Just burn it and get it out of here. Also, frankly, I thought, like, my impression was that it was a little unfair. If you look at the correction, if you look at the original language, nobody was ever saying Harry Reid is positive about this. It was like, Harry Reid thinks that this is the case. And, like, I had gotten to know Leslie well enough that I thought, like, Leslie, you know, there are certainly things she's gotten wrong over the years, but she's careful. She's not sloppy. And I thought, like, I highly doubt that she got this so wrong, especially on something so crucial. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a follow-up interview with Reed, and there were a bunch of things I wanted to ask him, but I really wanted to get to the bottom of this. And I said to him, so, like, let's talk about, do you, I don't know if you remember, last summer there was some confusion with the New York Times about this correction. He was like, yeah, I remember. And I was like, well, what happened? And he said... I have absolutely no proof that we have a crash, you know, UFO crash debris. And he said this a bunch of times and I kept pushing him. And I said like, well, we've all heard these stories. Like these stories have been circulating for a long time. And then finally he got kind of exasperated with me and was like, yes, like, you know, I have heard for decades that Lockheed Martin has UFO crash debris. And I tried to get Pentagon approval to go see it and they wouldn't give it to me and they wouldn't explain why. Um, so that was my question. If Harry Reid doesn't have clearance and like who, how, this is a crazy question, Gideon, in your estimation, are there sort of like levels of clearance and security that sort of exists extra governmentally? No. I mean, like, that seems to me to be, like, one of the, like, completely crazy things here that, like, you know, people talk about, like, cosmic top secret is 38 levels beyond, <laughs> like, what the typical commander in chief is granted. Cosmic and top secret. Actually, we had a bit of a fact checking issue because the fact checker was like, 
Well, you know, what they believe is that it's 38 levels, not above any commander in chief, but above your average commander in chief, because maybe some commanders in chief actually have like higher levels than others. And I was like, I can't believe we're talking about this. Like, this is so (laughs) crazy. This is like a completely crazy thing, but you know, but she was right to be like, well, we're going to be consistent here and we're going to like talk about what they actually believe. And so in this case, uh, yeah, no, that, that's insane. I mean, that's one of the things that I can categorically say I do not think is true. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing that I kept on pondering and meditating on was this point that if it is true that there are aliens and Lockheed Martin and the government have had the cover-up of all cover-ups, I think it's inconceivable that anybody can keep a secret this well. It's just not in human nature to... To, to, there's just no way. Like, if I yeah. knew this was true and I was like the colonel, <laughs> I would like all my deathbed be like, this is what's, this is what it is. Yeah. everybody know. Like, why not? I, that's the only reason why I just can't see it true. Like, I do believe what the physicists and the astrobiologists think that there's got to be life out there in the universe, probably in our, in our system. But for the sole fact that I know how hard it is. We all know how hard it is to keep a secret. Yeah. There's no way that this is happening. And also and also how expensive it is to keep a secret. I mean, that's another one of the things that come up is that when people say like, oh, you know, these UFOs actually are just like highly, highly classified advanced technology. But then, you know, as other people have pointed out who know a lot more about military history than I do, like this just doesn't happen. That like the F-117 cell fighter, which was like one of the most confidential military projects in history, was basically secret for like two years and you just cannot keep secrets for that long and that in any one of these programs literally like your secrecy budget is like five times what your budget for everything else is because you have to be constantly checking up on people yeah and you got the aliens only drink white burgundy and eat caviar it's so expensive to keep an alien guys trust me it's so expensive i mean gideon what are some of the like the most famous examples of ufologists saying that this has happened or, you know, like besides Area 51 that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, are there other examples that should be more well-known that are not? Well, I mean, of course, Roswell's really well-known. But one of the things that I like about Leslie is that she avoids these really old cases where, like, you know, maybe at some point there was real evidence, but that evidence is long, like, encrusted over with many levels of you know, myth at this point. Uh, I mean, you know, Jacques Vallée, who's this very famous ufologist, is studying stuff he claims to be crash debris from various sites. I mean, they're always talking about crashes in Brazil, and I don't know. I, I like, I, I'm not as up-to-date on some of that but stuff. But, like, where's the evidence, though? You know, it's a little bit Well, like- people say, like, that there's evidence in radiation readings, that, like, the radiation levels at certain supposed landing sites are off the charts, or that, like, people were exposed to radiation burns, or... But it's hard to credit a lot of that stuff i mean we heard from chris that he believes in <laughs> alien life form on this planet what that the they fuck? created the pyramids <laughs> you ever tried to make a pyramid before Dude, come on, man. he believes that crop circles are a way of communicating <laughs> with, with alien life form i mean that's where i get most of my instructions <laughs> <laughs> after all of your research where do you stand Less of a believer, more of a believer, or just the same? You know, I would say that, like, whatever is going on here, it's something weird. I mean, like, and you know, there, there's been really good reporting out of a website called The Drive about, like, these, like, drone swarms that have been seen off various aircraft carriers where they think, like, oh, this is just, like, foreign adversaries exploiting very low-cost new technologies to surveil and confuse us. And like, you know, maybe it's that. Like, it's it's good reporting about that. Maybe it's that, but like, something weird has been going on. And like, why not grant that something weird has been going on? Because when I saw that video from the jet pilot, Commander Fravor, yeah. that's not somebody that is trying to be seen as a crackpot. That's no. real footage being like, what the fuck is that? You can hear the yeah. whole conversation. And that's when you're like, Maybe they're right. This is this yeah. is insane. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to argue. 
Some, I mean, what one person told me was that like the really, one of the really decisive things in getting Congress to take action was just briefings with the pilots, that like the pilots are just so credible. But then again, there's evidence that pilots make a lot of mistakes because sometimes when you're trained really well to be able to anticipate certain things, you're not as good as recognizing other things. It should be said, by the way, for listeners at home, that Gideon is wearing a tinfoil hat through this whole recording. I know it's an audio medium, but we forgot to mention that. Uh, well, but I had to put that on to block the broadcast that I would be hearing otherwise, because then it would just be really noisy. It's hard to I, listen to the sh- to the mothership and speak on a podcast at the same time. Uh, I, w- I don't want to take up your time forever, but I've, I've, I will say I've been hoping to have you and Dave to merge these two worlds for a long time, because you guys have so many overlapping interests. Gideon studied with Richard Rorty, Dave, and then Dave studied religion. And, yeah, but and, he's a real student. I, 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 I could <laughs> I could cook lunch for New Yorker staff. He can write for the New Yorkers. A big big difference. Well, it is funny that for the last couple of years, Ying has been like, "We we should have you on. We'll talk about Richard Rorty." And then he's like, "No, nah, we're going to do UFOs." But, <laughs> I'm just thinking about the, the, the podcast showing up in people's feeds. But the other thing I was going to say is Dave studied religion in college and, and Gideon, your first book was about taking these various pilgrimages, these walking pilgrimages, yeah. including the Camino de Santiago. And then what's the Japanese one called? Uh, the Circuit of the 88 Temples of Shikoku. So <laughs> you did both of these and I wanted to kind of try to bring this back to a, a food thing here at the end of our podcast. But I never, I've never really asked you this and you wrote about it a little bit in the pieces. If you're talking to two big boy Asians here, like how's the, how's the eating on those, on those <laughs> pilgrimages? Oh, I mean, the eating on the pilgrimage in Spain was terrible. And I constantly griped about that in the book. In <laughs> Japan, I, I like essentially subsisted on Konbani onigiri for eight weeks. That's like it, that, you just that walk was just around. like what I had. They, yeah, and every time, because there were times that I would go like a, a day or two without passing a company, so I would just like buy 10 of them at a time and just have them in my bag, and that's kind of all I ate for months. That, that, <laughs> so you were visiting the 88 temples and your <laughs> only sustenance was... No, no, that, that's not... I mean, occasionally, I would like sometimes I would stay at Ryokan's and then I would like have the food at the Ryokan, which obviously was amazing. But yeah, I ate a lot of rice balls. I still eat a lot of rice balls. And just nothing in Spain? Nothing on the Camino de Santiago is yeah, worth reporting you know, on? Yeah, tortilla. Like, and fine, like when we got into Galicia, like the, the octopus is good, I guess. Although I'm not, a big <laughs> octopus, I'm not a big octopus person, but... There's only so many tortillas you can eat. Tapas get boring after a while. <laughs> That's how I felt. I feel bad saying that, but I was not, not thrilled about the Spanish food. Okay. Well, I thought... I, I remember reading the piece and you were... Because you had a companion... Yeah. with you in Spain for part of the, the Camino. And my favorite part, well, first of all, can you explain the Camino de Santiago briefly for people? Oh, it's just a medieval pilgrimage to um, the northwest corner of Spain that has been around for a thousand years and has become really popular with a young backpacker crowd in the last 20 years or so. 30 and it years. takes you what? How long to walk the full? Uh, most people take about a month to walk 550 miles or so from the French border to uh, Santiago. My favorite detail of that was you were walking with your friend, Tom Bissell, yeah. and you were committed to sort of like some sort of asceticism, some sort of roughing <laughs> it, some sort of making progress. And Tom just wanted to stop and stay at every hotel and yeah, eat at every did. restaurant along the way. So maybe it was just maybe his, I'll go on the Tom Bissell tour. Drinking chilled red wine for breakfast. He really got into the chilled red wine, especially at breakfast. Well, I don't know. If Dave and I were ever to do the, the Camino, I think we would be more in the Tom camp. I, I would not last a day. <laughs> <laughs> no chance. Um, thank you. Thank you for writing thank this you. article. Thank you for coming on this podcast. And thank, thank you, you for, 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 for helping us set up Chris Ying to admit to the world that he <laughs> believes the ancient Sumerians and he believes in the dogs and Ghostbusters are real. <laughs> I am the gatekeeper. <laughs> Are you the key master? Uh, that was Gideon Lewis Krauss. Please read the New York Times, not the New York Times, please read the New Yorker article, my paper record, and ask yourself this question, like, what the fuck would you do if you read that or watched on the news that aliens are a real thing? So 
it's also the reason why I follow the Mars Lander, the the, the Mars expeditions and all these things as I just love this shit. I love it, but it's a food podcast because we talk just a little bit about food. So thank you guys. Stay safe, everybody. Bye.